David in 1 Samuel 20. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. That was 15 or 20 years before this event takes place in David's life. In in verse 1, that word translated out of Hebrew, same word used in 1 Samuel 20, but it's translated there, steadfast love. And uh, it's one of the great Hebrew words. I usually don't do this, but I'm going to tell you what the word is because I think it's a great word for you to know. The word is hesed. And if you're a Jewish person, you say it like hesed, right? But I can't get that part very well, so I just say hesed, hesed. And there's not really a great English equivalent Perhaps the simplest translation in our context is mercy. Mercy. David's heart, as we open this story, is to show mercy to any descendant left of Saul and Jonathan's lineage. So he learns through one of Saul's old servants, this guy named Ziba, that there's a man left of Saul's lineage. Verse 3, there's still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. We find out that his name is Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth will be the object of David's mercy. And I want you to see how stunning and shocking this is. This is stunning. Mephibosheth, look in verse 6. It is emphasized, is the son of Jonathan, but also the son of Saul. He is the grandson of of the leading antagonist in David's life to this point. Mephibosheth is from and represents the old dynasty, the dynasty that David fought against for decades and has finally overcome. Mephibosheth represents the line of the former king and the former kingdom. How does the world normally handle this situation? In 1483... We see one of many examples of how the world normally handles this situation. King Edward IV was the king of England. He died in 1483, and he left behind him two young sons who were his heirs. One was 12 years old, and one was 9 years old. And the two brothers were placed under the care of their allegedly loving and caring uncle, whose name was Richard, the Duke of Gloucester who was named Lord Protector, a very English way to say things, right? Lord Protector of, his, of the two siblings. And, and while publicly proclaiming loyalty to one of the boys, the new king, Richard had the boys placed in the Tower of London while awaiting the coronation of the eldest of the two princes. And they were never seen again as Richard assumed the throne. This is Game of Thrones sort of stuff, guys and gals. That's the norm. The normal operating system for new kings when they find the heirs of old kings is to make sure that they're not going to be a threat. To eliminate them. To finish off your enemy's household. David is showing mercy to his enemy because we read of promises he had made to Jonathan. He is being covenantally faithful. The object of David's mercy, is one whom the world would counsel him to destroy. But there's more. Notice that it's emphasized in the passage, verse 3 and verse 13, that Mephibosheth is lame. He's crippled. What had happened? There's one little verse in 2 Samuel 4, chapter 4, verse 4, that you can read about. 
when Saul's house was fighting with David's house for the throne, um, uh, Mephibosheth had had an accident. And I want you to just maybe even picture with me in your minds the, the, the pathos of the scene. The pure human tragedy, the, the just stunning humanity of the Bible here, of what had happened to Mephibosheth. He's five years old, and his dad, Jonathan, and his granddad, Saul, have just been killed in battle against David's army. And what looked secure and certain for Mephibosheth is now suddenly, boom, with the snap of the finger, under threat. And his nurse runs into his room and and sweeps him up and says, we've got to go. We've got to go now. This is a traumatic experience for him. They're fleeing for the life, vacating Saul's palace. And Mephibosheth, he's at that age where he's not quite old enough to run on his own, but he's a little bit too old to be carried. And the nurse carries him out in her haste and runs away from the palace, away from her enemies, away from David's army, who certainly would have killed him. And she trips. And as she trips, she drops Mephibosheth, and he has an injury. Both of his ankles are are shattered. They're shattered so badly that he cannot heal. And for the rest of his life, he's a cripple limping around on crutches. Think about Mephibosheth. Think about how vulnerable he is. He's the only descendant of a cursed and fallen line. He's heard, undoubtedly, that if David tracks him down, he's dead. That's what Saul was going to do to David, after all. And now, David is going to repay the favor to Saul and all of Saul's family when he gets the chance. And his name probably wasn't Mephibosheth. That likely wasn't his given name. You pregnant ladies, I know you're thinking, Mephibosheth, that's a great name for my next child. Don't do it. Don't do it. Not just because it will be misspelled by teachers and mispronounced by teachers his entire life, but because Mephibosheth means mouthful of shame, or maybe mouthful of contempt. His entire life, you see, it's been destroyed. And Mephibosheth likely feels contempt for David. And anytime anyone in the home looks at Mephibosheth, see, I'm even screwing up, when they look at him, they feel shame. They feel contempt for him. And where does he live? Look at what the author tells us. Verse 4, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Lodabar means no place. No place. He's been taken out of favor and, and riches in the palace as a son of the prince. And he's become literally a lame shameful nobody in a nowhere town. It's like Lubbock, you know? Lodabar, (laughs) Lubbock. Very close. This lame, helpless grandchild of David's great enemy, Saul, is going to be the object of David's hesed, of David's mercy. The Bible is so brilliant, guys. It's so brilliant. It's brilliant because it's a window into who God is, but it's also a mirror, a mirror into who we are. Who are we in this story? We've seen this a lot in David's life. We always inevitably put ourselves in the stories. Usually we put ourselves in David's spot. We're not David. Hint. We are all Mephibosheths. 
were all Mephibosheth, all children of a fallen king, a rebel who had lost his kingdom, our first father, Adam. We are enemies now of the true king of this world, and the wages of our rebellion against the king is certain death, it's punishment, it's condemnation, and we're full of shame. Our mouths are full of contempt. Our own failings, our own sins, they weigh us down. We're bitter. We're bitter because of our curse. We're separated. We're alone. We're hopeless and helpless in this world. We are nobodies from nowhere. We're internally crippled. We're spiritually ragged. Don't you feel this? Don't you feel that? Think of your life. How many times have we broken trust? How many times have we lashed out against God, either internally by ourselves silently or maybe even verbalizing it? How often are we bitter at him, spiteful to him, blaming him for our plight, for our condition, mouths full of contempt? And how often is our weakness exposed? We can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can't even walk. We're lame. We're the blind. We're the beggars. We can pretend for a time to be imposters. We can pretend as imposters, rather. But when we're alone with our own thoughts, and when we peer into our own hearts, we all know the truth. Our only hope is hesed from our king. Second, the extravagance. The extravagance of mercy. Mephibosheth is the object of David's mercy. Secondly, I want to show you the extravagance of it. Imagine what Mephibosheth is is thinking as he limps into David's palace. Surely the hatchet is about to fall, right? Has the guillotine been invented yet? Because if it has, I'm about to get guillotined, right? Uh, He's finally found me, David has. I'm a dead man. But what does David say? Verse 7, do not fear. Now you can imagine a king, if he's really, you know, cunning and crafty saying do not fear we're going to take you out to uh, the palace and they throw him in prison but that's not what David says do not fear for I will show you chesed mercy for the sake of your father Jonathan David based on promises he had made willingly and joyfully shows mercy on Mephibosheth and look at how far David takes it his extravagant mercy is seen here it's seen in three ways Look with me. First, he protects Mephibosheth. Do not fear. I'll show you mercy. When a king tells you not to be afraid, you can trust that he has the power to back that promise up. David plans to use all of the abundant resources at his disposal to see to it that Mephibosheth is safe. He protects him. Secondly, he provides for Mephibosheth. Verse 7, I will restore to you, he says, All the land of Saul, your father. And and then he orders Ziba's entire household to, to continue to serve Mephibosheth by working the land formerly owned by Saul and now willed back to Saul's lame grandson. That's 9, 10, and 11 there in the text. And notice also the the author explicitly mentions Mephibosheth's son, implying that this promise is generational. David is learning 
He's learning mercy from God. God has made to David a generational promise, and he's now doing the same for Mephibosheth. He protects him. He provides for him. Thirdly, he positions Mephibosheth. Verse 7, you shall eat at my table always. And verse 13, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Think about, if you've been with us in this series, this is poetic irony at its finest. Remember when David was younger, whose table did he eat at? Saul's. He ate at Saul's table, but Saul was thinking like Godfather style, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer. Right? And he even used David's proximity to him to try to kill David on multiple occasions, spearing him or trying to against the wall. Interesting family meals those would have been. But now David is using his table as king to redeem that experience with gospel-driven mercy. Despite the trauma Saul had caused David, David will make Mephibosheth one of his sons. This lame Nobody from nowhere getting a seat with the king's family. And not just any the king, any king, the king who has for years been said to be my arch nemesis, my chief enemy. Imagine how shocking that is. But that's what mercy is like. It's extravagant. Listen to how um, Pastor Chuck Swindoll puts it. I loved this this week, so I want to just read this quote from his commentary on the story. He writes, quote, picture what life would be like in years to come at the supper table with David. The meal is fixed, and the dinner bell rings, and along come the members of the family and their guests. Amnon, clever and witty, comes to the table first. Then there's Joab, one of the guests, muscular, masculine, attractive, his skin bronzed from the sun, walking tall and erect like an experienced soldier. Next comes Absalom. Talk about handsome. From the crown of his head to the soles of the feet, there is not a blemish on him. Then there is Tamar, beautiful, tender, daughter of David. And later, one could add Solomon as well. He's been in the study all day. But he finally slips back away from his work and makes his way to the table. But then they hear this clump, clump, clump. And here comes Mephibosheth hobbling along. He smiles and humbly joins the others as he takes his place at the table as one of the king's sons. And the tablecloth of grace covers his feet. What a window into God's own way, into God's own character. The love of God is totally over the top. It is so utterly extravagant that it can't be done justice through any human story, fiction or nonfiction. Do you believe that God... His mercy is extravagant for us too. God protects us, just like David protected Mephibosheth. Not a hair falls from our heads, and some of you have had a lot of hair fall from your heads, 
without the will of the Father in heaven. Jesus, our good shepherd, tends for us. David writes elsewhere of God, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Listen, when you're afraid and fearful of what your future holds, when you don't know where else to turn, when you're in over your head as we so often are, there is mercy from God. God protects you. God provides for us just like David provided for Mephibosheth. If God clothes the lilies of the field in splendor and give the birds of the air food to eat, then he will take care of us. Some of you are staring at the inherent uncertainties of life. Listen to me. How can I afford the medicine I need? Is my business going to make it? Are my kids going to be okay? Am I going to be okay? Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not even death. Not even hell. Not even Satan. He's got this. God positions you just like he positioned David, Mephibosheth. God has seated us at his table. Listen to this. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in hesed, Mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. One more great Swindoll quote. It's not up there. You're just going to have to listen. He says this. When Mephibosheth sat down at the table of the king, He was treated just like any other son of the king. That's the way it is now and the way it will be throughout eternity when we feast with our Lord. Can you imagine sitting down at the table with Paul, Peter, John to break bread with Abraham and Esther and David and Mephibosheth himself and the Lord will see you and you're as important to me as all the other children. How can God say that to someone like me? A sinner, a rebel, someone whose mouth has been full of shame and contempt towards others, towards myself, and towards him. He can position you, and he can position me because Jesus gave up his position. Jesus left his father's house. He left his father's table and went to death on a cross to forgive you. Jesus left God's palace. He left God's protection. He left God's provision to bring us in. The transfer of the gospel that he gets our shame. He gets our contempt. He gets our condemnation and we get his joy and peace and righteousness and belonging is the guarantee and the seal that all of God's pledges of mercy to us are true. We can trust them. How deep the father's love for us that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. The extravagance of mercy, it's so vivid in this story. Last thing, real quick, how to receive mercy. Latent throughout this story um, is what I think is an essential thing to grasp if you want to understand the Christian faith. 
if you want to experience the transformation that Jesus Christ offers you. And it's so important because it's so counter-cultural. What is it? Here's what it is. Mercy is only for those who know they need it. Mercy is only for those who know they need it. Or as the evil sensei and karate kid said, mercy is for the weak. Mercy is for the weak. He didn't mean it, by the way, in the way that I mean it. Mercy is for the weak. It's only for the weak. And you see that in Mephibosheth. Think about it. When Mephibosheth is coming into David's presence in the palace, what does the author tell us he did? Verse 6. He fell on his face and he paid homage. Now, Mephibosheth could have done something different. He could have tried to look impressive. He could have tried to look like a threat to David. He, David, he, could, he could have tried to, you know, walk in as if he wasn't a cripple, helpless, hopeless, lame person. But that's not what he did. He fell face down, putting on display the full array of his helplessness saying to David and to everyone watching, I can't walk, I can't stand before you, I have nothing to offer, and I deserve nothing. I'm nobody from nowhere. You can't have a weaker posture. And that's the exact point, my friends. Listen, there are two types of people in the world. Those who can be, and there are those for whom being weak is your worst nightmare. For some of you, admitting that you're nobody from nowhere is unimaginable because you're proud of who you are. You're accomplished. You have status. You're impressive. You're learned. In the economy of the gospel, your greatest accomplishments are your biggest weaknesses. And your biggest weaknesses are your surest strengths. To get mercy, you have to receive it as a gift. If you're pretending to be better or stronger, or holier than you are, you aren't looking for mercy. You're looking for reward. You aren't face down before the king in weakness. You're trying to prop yourself up in some pathetic attempt to show strength. Mercy is only for those who know and, in a sense, revel in their own undeserving helplessness. A number of years ago, uh, Marianne and I took the kids to, uh, with their cousins to this water park in New Braunfels. Some of you have probably been there. It's like a, what is it? It's like a spring-fed water park, water pool, super fun place. And um, one, you know, the water is pretty deep in some places. And, and uh, I remember uh, we had an experience where there's these kids on the other side of the pool playing in the deep end. And one of the kids, um, he, he got, uh, what is it? Uh, he cramped up, thank you. He started cramping up and couldn't swim, started sinking in the water, and he was thrashing around, thrashing around. And, and one of his other friends sees what's happening and jumps in and runs to save the kid. And, and they're both thrashing around, thrashing around. And you know what happens, of course, if they're thrashing around, trying rocks. And it was only when the lifeguard finally, by the way, took her forever, finally got there and told the kids, just be still that they could receive the help that was essential to saving their lives. Some of you can't stop thrashing in the water because you're terrified of being seen as Mephibosheth. You can't know Jesus that way. The only way to know Jesus is when you can joyfully say, 
I have nothing and no one. I'm a nobody from nowhere. Jesus, show me your mercy. Be like Mephibosheth. Admit your total and complete helplessness and rest in God's mercy. Kids are coming in. That's my cue. Let's pray.